this is a vast topic, uh, and I've tried to portray the uh, canvas uh, very widely here. Uh, so uh, if you if you get if you can't take it all in along the way, uh, you can mark a few points uh, to follow up uh, uh, an interest, whether in reading or uh, discussing uh, at a later point. Well, I thought I would start with uh, just a passage from Scripture from 1 Timothy that uh, serves as a collective confession for this uh, uh, vast, enormous sin that uh, has marked us as human beings throughout our history. I thank him who has given me strength for this, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me, for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost of sinners, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for, for eternal life. And then he breaks into adoration to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, here's a little quiz uh, to start with. Uh, I was going to have you break up in the groups, but uh, uh, it, I think it would take too long. But uh, uh, What are the iconic images that you think of when you hear slavery and abolition? And, uh, you, you know, you can... Uh, you've got a, a, cl a clue as to uh, one of them here, but but what what comes to mind, uh, John? Portuguese. Okay, Portuguese. Uh, others. Uh, slave ships. Slave ships. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wilberforce. Wilberforce. Yeah. No. Simon Legree. Simon Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. John Newton. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, what about the? Yeah, and that, and that covers. I was going to ask you about people as well, but uh, so uh, we'll start in here, and uh, um, so images. Here's another one that somebody mentioned back there: the, the slave ship Brooks, which uh, the abolitionists used in their good propaganda. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's. Uh, uh, Joan mentioned her this morning. Uh, I won't, uh, I won't touch on that. But uh, and I jumped ahead to the next part of the quiz there, but uh, got it out of the way. But uh, so, if 11 million or so Africans survived passage, uh, the slave passage across the Atlantic, uh, what were their destinations? Um, what percentage had English-speaking North America as their destination? Uh, West Indies, Caribbean islands, Spanish-speaking America, and Brazil. Any uh, any general ideas about that? Uh, the break the breakdown. Forty percent for North America. Okay. Yeah. 
I think a huge, huge amount went to Brazil. It's obvious looking at okay. the beach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. South America. Yeah. Well, he, here we go. Uh, British uh, North America, 5 to 6 percent. Uh, Caribbean, 48 percent with all those sugar plantations. Uh, Spanish-speaking America is 4.5 percent, and Brazil, 41 yeah. percent. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that throws you is that in British, uh, in the British American mainland, there was tremendous biological growth among slaves. So uh, by the time of the Civil War, uh, uh, half of slaves in the hemisphere uh, lived in uh, in uh, in the U.S. at that point. Um, I will make an argument this morning that it was the development of Christianity that brought about the abolition of slavery. Uh, this abolition impulse took a long time in its making. It became a very deep current, deep below the surface. It did not depend solely on particular individuals such as Wilberforce, but there were contingencies, and like the Battle of Thermopylae, individuals stepped in at an important moments. Abolition might not have happened, uh, and that, that, that's an interesting discussion that we really can't go into at the moment. I would also like to say that abolitionist women were very important, and for so many we don't know their names. And even more so, we don't know the names of so many, many slaves, but God does. I hope that I am able to return to these considerations, but if I don't, uh, please, please remember that. How, how do we broadly define slavery? Number one, uh, there is a relationship that involves permanent, violent, and personal domination, an animalization of the enslaved person. The person is chattel, property. Number two, the slave is always an excommunicated person lacking an independent social condition. And here I'm speaking broadly again. Uh, number three, the slave has a perpetual condition of dishonor. With some exceptions, the slave, uh, particularly as slavery developed, uh, there are changes. Uh, the slave owner held the power of life and death over his slaves. Facial mutilation and other types of mutilation were common, and castration was not uncommon. In antiquity, slavery was basically universal, whether one lived in Europe, Asia, Africa, or the Americas. In pre-capitalist antiquity, <laughs> slavery was the capital. In Africa, for example, there was no landed property as in Europe, and this ad absence made slavery much more pervasive uh, and in a, a market that could eventually be tapped into by outsiders. Slaves were the only uh, productive capital there. There is also the key question of what makes one uh, eligible to be a slave. Uh, why, is, why this eligibility changes uh, over time? What separates outsiders, the slaves, from insiders? For example, Africans did not see other Africans as Africans. Uh, the differences were across tribal or language lines. Uh, going to another continent, the Russian aristocracy 
was able to make ideological distinctions or distinctions in uh, birth line or, or whatever in order to enslave other Russians. By the time of the Renaissance, the Dutch and the English were the most advanced in a capitalist sense, but the least likely to enslave their own subjects. Enslavery of, of almost any type had largely disappeared from Western Europe. Uh, Spain, uh, being on the border there, was an exception. Uh, in the West, the line between slavery and freedom was basically the line formed by the Danube and Sava rivers. West of the line was freedom, even though life, say, in medieval times was very tough. Uh, and east of the line, slavery uh, existed. Cultural factors are at work here rather than strictly economic ones. Uh, I argue that these cultural factors include religion, and I put more emphasis on religion than, than uh, many uh, would in the field. It would have made more sense economically to, for, for Europeans to enslave other Europeans in, uh, in many ways, but Christian inhibitions had, had uh, developed uh, against enslaving one's uh, Christian neighbor. In a different context, one's inhibitions might fall away, uh, a la William Golding in Lord of the Flies or Joseph Conrad in uh, Heart of Darkness, or the, or the New World, as we will see here. There was an enduring slave trade that went across the Sahara and south into Africa, uh, going far back, uh, and in the other direction, north into Eurasia. Perhaps 10 million slaves over 1,000 years flowed into the lands controlled by the sultans in the Mediterranean basin. Africa was always a source of slaves. As I've said, they were the only form of revenue-producing property recognized by African law. But at one point, 10,000 Muscovites a year were transported uh, south as slaves. Uh, so uh, interesting to... Uh, these facts are just interesting in painting the canvas of how extensive slavery was in the ancient world and in all places. Um, I should mention the topic of resistance uh, when I was uh, in my um, uh, oral exams uh, at UBC. Uh, my advisor uh, for slavery, uh, the topic of slavery, uh, really pushed me on the topic of resistance. And uh, uh, I, I do recognize its importance, but uh, I don't see it as determinative for uh, Freedom, and you know, I lost some brownie points here, but uh, I did pass the exam. Um, resistance of, by slaves, of course, goes back to antiquity. Uh, Spartacus, uh, in the years uh, 73 to 71 BC, Spartacus was a was a slave from Thrace, a, a Roman slave, uh, who became a gladiator and. Uh, escaped and led 70,000 slaves against the Romans, and they tramped up and down uh, Italy for two years. Uh, most of the slaves died in the final battle. Some got away, but in the end, 6,000 were crucified uh, along the Apian Way. The objective of the rebellion, like all of these rebellions, 
uh, was not to abolish slavery, and they, I understand, I believe that they took slave, slaves as they went, uh, Romans no doubt, uh, but uh, rather they wanted to plunder and or just to go home. Uh, but uh, they ended up, and, and it was an opportune time, the legions were out of the country for the most part, and uh, they created havoc. Uh, The Jan's uh, slave rebellion from uh, 869 to 883 A.D. was even larger and uh, uh, took place near near Basra, which has been in the news in the last couple of decades, uh, in the years 869 to 883. Uh, And those who rose up were the Jan's, who were Bantu-speaking slaves from East Africa. Tens of thousands of them were killed uh, in this uprising. Uh, one estimate puts the total at one million, but it seems hard to believe. Uh, but it does give you a sense of the the size of the slave trade. If if uh, at this point, uh, you know, 1,200 years ago or whatever, uh, tens of thousands of slaves, African slaves, died in this place, it gives you an idea of the. Uh, of how many peoples were uh, were transported. Resistance was always present in everyday slave life, uh, whether whether here or uh, in the United States. Um, but again, I don't hold it as being determinative in the case of the abolition uh, that of the kind that we see in 1833. And we could talk about Haiti, uh, but uh, uh, in in uh, 1791 to 1804. And the rebellion there, but uh, we we don't have the time to go into that right now. Um, here in BC, uh, uh, First Nations uh, in BC and throughout the Americas were slave cultures. At least the powerful and wealthy nations, the Haida were wealthy, aggressive, and powerful. Their war canoes were superior. They would hold fifty to sixty warriors. And they would travel up and down the coast in search of plunder and, even more importantly, uh, slaves. Uh, their islands served as fortresses, uh, that, and the, but the British were able to shut down this kind of, uh, of uh, war party uh, with, with their gunboats, although they used gunboats on occasion in, in, in very sinful ways, um, which I, I won't go into right now. But um, not, and I'm not uh, saying that uh, uh, Europeans did not uh, commit many, many sins uh, in, the, in the history of the encounter with uh, Aboriginal peoples. Uh, James Douglas, the first governor of B.C., was a, and I'm getting off off, uh, off track right now, but we're in B.C., so I thought it was uh, appropriate. Uh, the first governor of B.C. was an abolitionist with respect to African slaves, but also opposed uh, the slavery pa- practiced by Aboriginals in uh, mid-19th century B.C., and on one occasion personally ransomed a slave and turned him over to the care of an Anglican clergyman. So just to refresh you as to where I'm going with all this, I'm arguing that Christianity allowed for the breakdown of this divide between slave and free, and that the advent of evangelicalism provided the activism and the foot soldiers uh, needed to abolish slavery. Uh, 
an enterprise that remained very profitable until the very end of slavery as we know it. And this isn't to say that there weren't others involved in abolition, but uh, even the surge of evangelicalism allowed for it to happen, I will argue. But I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself a bit here, but just giving you an idea of where this argument is going. Slavery was seen as natural. Uh, Aristotle, Cicero, we read about slavery in the Bible, although I believe that the seeds for abolition are planted there uh, in the the doctrine of uh, all mankind, humankind created in the image of God. Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who I put a quote down on your handout, uh, in the late 14th century, was the first uh, writer in antiquity that we have uh, in an extant writing who uh, condemned uh, slavery. And he complains, slaveholders set themselves up as masters of creatures who are made in the image of God. You've forgotten the limits of your authority and that your rule is confined to control over things without reason. Surely human beings have not been produced from your cattle? But... uh, like all these voices, Gregory can't envision, uh, you know, a call for the abolition of slavery, uh, but he he condemns it, nonetheless, and uh, is very important um, in this. Uh, this is the only extant writing from an antiquity that is critical of the institution of slavery. But as I, I I was writing that, I happened to read a review written by Peter Brown of the new translation of Augustine's Confessions, and in this review. Uh, Brown quotes a letter that was actually discovered in the 1990s, I believe, uh, uh, in which Augustine is out rescuing slaves from slaveholders uh, in his own that had come into his own parish. Uh, and you can read that uh, fascinating uh, little passage. So then we, we will jump ahead. Uh, okay, Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, on slavery, you've got that quote, uh, Augustine of Hippo, and the Corsairs of, uh, of uh, from this period, 1500, 1800, that came up uh, from from the Mediterranean, uh, even and did raids up into uh, along the coast of Europe, uh, into the British Isles, uh, even Ireland, and and. Uh, making uh, raids along the coast and and grabbing slaves, grabbing people uh, who they made into slaves. Um, but uh, we'll jump ahead to uh, Richard Richard Baxter here, and I've included uh, a quote from Baxter, who was a fierce critic of uh, slavery, and he said that it was heinous, that it was a heinous sin to buy a slave except for the purpose of freeing him. Uh, and uh, so there is one voice there. Puritans were often very critical of the slave trade uh, and the brutality of it. Uh, but at this point, still, uh, uh, this uh, open abolition is not, or a movement, it's just not envisioned. Uh, you know, it, slavery is part of the landscape. It's part of every everyday life, although not, again, in the uh, British Isles. But Baxter, of course, knew that by this point... Uh, 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 
the British and other Europeans were uh, trading in slaves. So what exactly uh, are we talking about that's being abolished in this process? Uh, And we can look at the... um, uh, the number, the sheer numbers of slaves, and the and the growth of the of the uh, trade, the, the Atlantic trade, is what we're talking about here. So late 17th century, almost 30,000. This is the late 1600s. Uh, 30,000 slaves per year. It it picks up to 50,000 uh, per per year in the second half of the 18th century, the late 1700s. Uh, or in the first half of the 18th century, the early uh, 1700s, and uh, in the second half of the 18th century, uh, it picks up again to 75,000 slaves per year. And who who is doing the transporting? All all of the European countries are involved in transporting slaves uh, from Africa to the New World, with uh, goods back to uh, Europe and England. From uh, 1751 to 1775, British ships carried 859,000 slaves of a total of approximately 1.9 million. The numbers aren't precise, but there are records, and scholars study these uh, records and have compiled databases. Um, And then here we see the effect of uh, the of the early abolition efforts, uh, and after this, British ships uh, there is a decline uh, with British ships uh, carrying 257,000 from 1801 to 1825. Uh, after 1808, they're of course not transporting to British colonies uh, because, as we'll see, uh, the slave trade uh, to British colonies is abolished, and, and to the United States for that matter and zero after 1826, uh, whereas Portuguese ships, um, you, you see almost 50% of slaves being carried by British ships at this point, and uh, uh, after 1826, the uh, Portuguese are carrying alone, are carrying 1.2 million, and that's in the face of, of British resistance. Uh, after slavery is abolished, uh, British gunboats are actively prowling the coast of uh, of Africa and uh, uh, Brazil, as I recall, uh, later on. Um, but the ocean is a big place, and uh, uh, yeah, lots of slaves were uh, still getting through, of course. And but it was it was even more profitable by the 19th century. In the New World. Um, there were some uh, rather lone voices. Uh, uh, there were a few uh, Quakers uh, that were speaking out against uh, slavery uh, very early on. Uh, George Fox was in favor of a gradual manumission of slaves. Uh, uh, William Penn was a slaveholder, as were many Quakers uh, in the New World. Uh, so the critics tended to be lone, isolated voices. Um, this is Benjamin Lay, who was an early uh, uh, Quaker prophet in uh, Pennsylvania. He, he stood four feet high. He lived in a cave, and he had uh, 200 uh, 
with 200 books or so, but uh, he would venture out to Quaker meetings and condemn them, and I could go into some details, but time is short, but he is a lone voice. Uh, uh, he was born in England, uh, uh, and uh, he had some connections with a, uh, a Quaker in, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, by the name of Anthony Benezet, I think it is the... Uh, American pronunciation, uh, who lived from 1713 to 1784. He was born in France of Huguenot parentage and uh, moved to London with his family when he was young, uh, became a Quaker. Uh, I think he had an evangelical orientation to his uh, faith. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, moved to Philadelphia, where already in the 1750s he was speaking out against slavery. Uh, but still a very isolated, lonely voice. Uh, he starts a, um, uh, a school there for uh, black children and, uh, and, and write, writes about the subject, uh, although the, the linkages between abolitionists, uh, and, and we see this happening, that there is a current deep underneath that is uh, already uh, flowing. Uh, there is an abolitionist impulse that is forming, but uh, it's um, uh, it's not a big a big movement by by any means. And I I should spend more time on Benazit, um, but uh, I will move on. So at its peak, uh, ninety thousand Africans a year and two hundred to three hundred ships from every major European country uh, were carrying. Were, were being carried. The increase in demand benefited African traders. African traders controlled the trade in Africa. Uh, there, were, there were very few Europeans in Africa on the coast uh, in, in the trade. They bought slaves. European ships bought, tr ship, bought slaves from Africans. Uh, and there was a series of forts set up along the coast, uh, Almina and... Ghana is one of the famous ones, and today it's a pilgrimage site for African Americans who, who go back to uh, what they see as their roots. Um, so African traders uh, bargained with the Europeans. They played off uh, different groups with, against each other. Uh, they tried to prevent European monopolies. It's not to say that uh, Europeans weren't uh, committing grievous sins. So with respect to abolition, and we'll move on a little bit here to uh, uh, some th theoretical historical concerns, um, uh, there's, there's two lines of, with respect to abolition as to what is behind it, what forces are behind it. Uh, Position one is that abolition was driven by economics. Uh, abolition correlated to the rise of industrial capitalism, and, and, and it did, of course. Uh, uh, the second line of argument, and that's the one I take, is that abolition is a derivative of the rise of evangelicalism, and I, and I don't disconnect this from um, the rise of, of industrial capitalism either, but... Um, they're certainly, um, they're certainly relate. Uh, they didn't, uh, they, they weren't uh, separate uh, phenomena. Um, 
certainly slavery had caused coexisted with Christianity for 1,800 years, so why now? Um, historians such as the late Roger Anstey has forcefully argued that it is related to uh, evangelicalism. The strongest center of abolitionist thought and activity was found in the strongest center of evangelicalism. Even as late as 1770, evangelicals were not sensitized on the slavery issue. So it depended on what generation you were a part of. With evangelicalism being kicked off in the 1730s, the first generation were folk like uh, Whitfield and uh, Wesley. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in the U.S., uh, the British colonies at that point, of course, um, and they, so they were British, you have to remember that. Uh, uh, Edwards, uh, uh, although he condemned slavery, the slave trade and the brutality of it, uh, had slaves, uh, in the, had a few slaves in the household. Uh, Whitfield uh, also condemned the brutality of slavery, but um, uh, he advocated the introduction into Georgia of slaves to assist with his with his um, orphanage. Uh, and just to give the generational uh, uh, side to this, uh, Jonathan Edwards, the younger, the son of Jonathan Edwards, became an ardent abolitionist. And uh, he even once said that to own a slave was to was a worse sin than visiting a brothel. And I, I don't want to debate that, but uh, that's, that's what he said. Uh, um, so even as late as 1770, Evangelicals were not sensitized on the slavery issue in the sense of uh, of starting a movement. Uh, uh, John Wesley and John Wesley bridged both generations, but he lived long enough to do so. Uh, I would argue uh, John Wesley's turnaround seems to come in 1772 with the important Somerset legal case, uh, and I might be able to get into that a little bit more, and through the writings of the Quaker, Anthony Benezet. Um, Christianity was very weak in the colonies, but evangelical missionary activity, activity exported from the British Isles brought about change. The colonial churches, whether Catholic or Protestant, had supported the status quo. Uh, but... Uh, Onto the scene came this surging evangelical movement, uh, such that Britain had basically proprietary rights on the abolitionist voluntary society. Abolition was a British export. France did not develop a significant abolition movement, or anywhere on the continent uh, was there a a significant abolition movement. One could argue that this was because France did not have the industrial capitalist base that Britain had, but the Netherlands also uh, that did, uh, maybe slightly different type, did not develop much of an abolitionist movement. Slavery continued on in Dutch Suriname and the Dutch East Indies uh, long after, or, or significantly after, and and in the cases uh, of these European countries where there was abolition, it was, one could argue, it was through pressure uh, from Britain, uh, which was the, um, uh, the, the global superpower at this point. Among historians, so among historians of slavery, the bedrock economic question is, was abolition 
facilitated by the decline of slave economies and or the rise of capitalist industrial systems? And how did economic and non-economic considerations figure in the process? And I will continue to argue that it was religious beliefs that brought about abolition, and more specifically the surge of evangelical beliefs and their development. And so we've mentioned uh, some stirrings of abolition among Quakers in the New World. Um, and this evangelical revival that comes along in the seven, 1730s, but there was still little coordination uh, or even awareness of other abolitionists. But deep under the service continued these currents. And remember also in the midst of degradation, Christianity gave individual slaves a tremendous self, sense of self-worth. And this became increasingly uh, important with, with the advent of evangelicalism, which believed in, uh, regardless of your perspective on slavery, uh, believed in evangelism among black slaves. And, and the black church, as you know, became a tremendous force in all of this. The first... Uh, okay, I've... I've I've uh, I've kind of skipped over some bits here, and I think I will just skip over it. Granville Sharp, a very important uh, uh, person in all of this, uh, he links up with Benezet. Uh, in 1772, the Mansfield Judgment uh, is uh, is all important, and mar- and seems to mark the beginning of uh, Wesley's uh, sensitization to the issue of, uh, of slavery. It's a legal decision made in 1772 uh, with respect to a, um, a slave, James Somerset, uh, who was, um, uh, he'd been brought to London by his owner, Charles Stewart from Boston, who was the receiver general for uh, customs in Boston. Um, and uh, in 1771, Somerset ran away, but uh, uh, came into contact with Sharp, Granville Sharp. And Granville Sharp had had taken two years of law school just to defend uh, uh, slaves. And uh, the general uh, impression that folk had, uh, even though it was somewhat ambiguous, was that English law did not support the keeping of a slave on English soil. And there never had been many slaves on English soil, even though there, even in Tudor times there were blacks in England, uh, but they were not slaves. Uh, so there was no inherited uh, black slavery in England. Um, uh, and I should mention African slave narratives, uh, I won't get the chance. Uh, uh, I'd like to just mention briefly Ukasa Greniasa, uh, who was a slave born on Lake Chad, uh, transported to the New World, uh, was a slave for a time. But eventually he was bought by Theodore Freilinghausen. Has anybody heard of Theodore Freilinghausen? Uh, Jim has, of course, but uh, he was a, a, a Dutch evangelist uh, in the Great Awakening. But and, and he treated uh, Grunius uh, very, very kindly and educated him and uh, manumitted him. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, 
Bruniasaw had this conversion experience uh, through reading Bunyan and, and Baxter, and uh, he, 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 when he was freed, he uh, joined the Royal Navy for a time, among other things. He even went to the Netherlands as a butler, but he knew about England, and that was the, the new Jerusalem. So he, he went to England, and he, and he had heard Whitfield on several occasions, and in uh, New York, and uh, he tracked Whitfield down and tried to get some help. And uh, Whitfield was uh, was, I believe, as I recall, helpful to him. He married an English woman, a weaver, and uh, he wanted to go to Kidderminster, so he ended up in Kidderminster because of the influence of Richard Baxter uh, through reading Richard Baxter. But I can't go into the whole story. He died destitute, unfortunately, but. With the help of a uh, of a Calvinist woman, uh, wrote wrote up his uh, narrative, uh, which probably sold very few copies because this was he died in seventy five. So this is just before abolition gets going. And uh, uh, but remarkable life. Read you can find it online. This uh, this story it's, it's just fascinating. I'd never heard of the guy until I uh, got immersed in this uh, a number of years ago. Uh, he's African. Yeah. And Wesley, of course, uh, I've, I've mentioned, uh, takes us to James Ramsey, a remarkable life, an early uh, abolitionist at a time when there wasn't any movement. Uh, uh, there was Benazed, as I've mentioned, in, in Philadelphia, and then there was James Ramsey. Uh, uh, Ramsey was a Royal Navy surgeon who entered into service in 1757, early on, and importantly served under Charles Middleton, an evangelical who became later Lord Admiral of the Navy. Uh, in 1759, the ship he was on was intercepted. The ship he was on intercepted a slaver. Uh, none wanted to board because of disease and filth, but Ramsey, the surgeon, went down into the hold and treated the slaves as best he could. A, a, a real uh, gesture that came, a uh, deep gesture that uh, of solidarity that came from his uh, evangelical convictions. Uh, he later broke his thigh bone uh, and was discharged. And he, so he took up holy orders and became an Anglican clergyman on the island of St. Kitts, beginning in 1762, where he married the daughter of a planter and set out to invite whites and blacks into his church and to convert slaves. Um, he was appointed surgeon on several plantations as well as being a, a clergyman, and he observed firsthand the conditions of slaves. Exhausted in 1877, he moved back to Britain to Teston uh, in God's Providence, where the Middletons lived, and he became part of a group of abolitionists that met at Barham Court. Uh, this is Charles Middleton and his wife, Lady Middleton. Not a whole lot is known about her in terms of letters, uh, but she is formative uh, for the abolitionist movement, including Wilberforce and company. And uh, the first uh, group of, uh, this first group of abolitionists, to meet as a group, 
no, nobody was meeting as groups to form a movement at this point. Uh, the Met at Barham Court, uh, which is still there, it burned in the 1930s, but it's now office uh, condos, and I'd, I'd like to visit that before I leave the planet. Uh, I haven't got there yet. I'm trying to talk my son into going down there with me. Uh, it's uh, east of London. Uh, so the Middletons lived there and became part of a group of abolitionists. And uh, Lady, L Lady Middleton is, uh, is at the center of this. Uh, I wish we could find out more about her. Like so many... Uh, uh, women who were involved in the movement. So the Middletons encouraged James Ramsey uh, to write up to write up uh, his, um, his the writings that he had started uh, and observations that he had started already in uh, St. Kitts and the Bodleian Library has uh, published them along with uh, the writings of his critics, uh, those who use the Bible to uh, uh, support slavery. So he was the first uh, abolitionist writer uh, uh, as a mainstream Anglican who was an evangelical. The British public was able to read, uh, and this is in the 70s now, uh, late 70s, early 80s, actually. Um, he met with uh, Prime Minister Pitt and with M Wilberforce m multiple times when Wilberforce was just a young, recently converted um, MP from Hull. Uh, James Watt wrote this about Ramsey. His enemies acknowledged his exemplary qualities while deploring the intemperate language of his books. And the abolition of the British trade, slave trade in 1807 probably owned, owed more to James Ramsey's personal integrity, ethical arguments, and constructive proposals than to any other influence. He died in 1789 before seeing the promised land. But the cause carried on. It was suggested that Middleton led, lead the anti-slavery cause in Parliament, but the Middletons in turn... Uh, persuaded Wilberforce to lead the charge, and uh, for that we are thankful. So it takes us to uh, William Wilberforce, uh, still a very young man at this point, uh, and a recent recent convert. You have to. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm looking at it on the other screen. Uh, this is a contemporary uh, portrait uh, of Wilberforce. It's not a modern uh, reconstruction. Uh, and uh, Wilberforce formed a friendship with Thomas Clarkson, uh, another young man, even oh, a year younger than Wilberforce, uh, who had studied at Cambridge and uh, in 18, 1787 wrote a uh, uh, prize-winning essay on, on slavery and delivered a copy to Wilberforce. I don't think they knew each other before. Maybe they did. Uh, they both went to Cambridge. Uh, um, St. John's College, I believe. Uh, that's where Wilberforce. And you can go there now and see a see a, a sculpture of uh, Wilberforce. Anyway, Clarkson probably somewhere else there too. Uh, 
their fr friendship was to last 50 years. Uh, Wilberforce sensed a call from God, writing in a journal entry in 1787, that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, uh, meaning moral values. I've already touched on the Somerset uh, decision, so I will jump over that. Uh, going back to the New World, um, the 1772 Somerset uh, decision seemed to energize even things in uh, back in in the New World. Uh, 1773 slaves petitioned legislatures in New England for freedom. And the uh, Somerset decision seems to have been a catalyst in this, as James Somerset had been a slave in Boston. Slaves themselves used all the means that they could to campaign, and, and here we're talking about resistance and its importance. I don't deny that. Steering committees, petitions, and, and the ideology of liberty and natural rights, which was stewing there in this uh, pre-revolutionary uh, uh, American setting. Anti-slavery slavery tracks increased in America with Wesley and Benezet and Granville Sharp uh, getting to know each other from a distance in, in the aftermath of the Somerset um, decision. So there was a triangular correspondence between Wesley and Benezet in the New World and um, Granville Sharp. I should, uh, Methodism, I, I can't forget Methodism. It's the fastest growing religious tradition in the transatlantic world and it played an important role. The Methodist discipline was uh, reined in and employed in avoiding luxury items such as sugar and rum in order to subvert the economics of the slave trade, uh, whether it did or not, uh, uh, how much of an impact is debatable. Uh, by urging a sugar boycott, it mobilized Methodist women who were, of course, the custodians of kitchen supplies. And evangelicalism was able to ride the tales of vast changes in organizing and communication. The Voluntary Society, the newspaper, print in general, and large spheres of action for women. Global missions brought back awareness of slavery to uh, the metropole, too. Uh, and, a, and a fusion of evangelical, humanitarian zeal and enlightenment notions of natural rights produced a powerful mobilization of men and women against slavery, whether in newspapers, coffee houses, debating societies, libraries, cultures, all of this. Methodism didn't set out to be politically involved, but it is a good thing that it did. So, uh, okay, I'll line things up. Uh, another uh, ex-slave, Olado uh, Equiano, uh, settled in Britain and uh, entered this abolitionist circle. Uh, with the Wilberforces and others, and he became a celebrity. He he, he wrote his narrative uh, also in this uh, uh, this collection of slave narratives, um, and or you can find it free online, of course. Um, uh, and he tramped around England and, and was a celebrity and an abolitionist. Uh, 
Canada was in the midst of this. Uh, I'm not, I won't be able to go into it. Uh, here's a ad for uh, a, a black woman being sold in 1806 in York, which uh, later became Toronto, uh, by Peter Russell, uh, who was uh, uh, a counselor uh, on the on the Council of Upper Canada. And six out of 16 councillors were slaveholders at this point. Uh, when uh, John Graves Simcoe became government governor, uh, he had been part of the Wilberforce Circle, had a religious conversion uh, in Britain after the Revolutionary War, when, in which he was a prisoner, and had a, some kind of a religious conversion, evangelical uh, religious conversion, was briefly in Parliament with Wilberforce, and cast a vote in 1791 or thereabouts in favor of, uh, of abolition. And he, he tried to outlaw slavery, but succeeded in uh, gradual uh, abolition. And, and it petered out for the most part after that. Uh, Mary Ann Shad, well, we're getting, we're getting ahead. Uh, she she uh, lived in Chatham, Windsor, and was a... Uh, an evangelical uh, black act activist, uh, American, uh, returned to uh, the U.S. during the Civil War. But uh, there was a... Slavery, of course, went on. And this is uh, a book about the slave trade uh, on the uh, Kenya, off the Kenya coast, Z Zanzibar, uh, late in the century. Uh, and there's uh, photos of slavery at this point, obviously, whereas we don't have many from earlier times, just just portraits. Uh, British gunboats played an important role. Well, you could you could debate that, uh, uh, but uh, they shot they sought to shut down the trade off of the uh, uh, what's now Tanzania coast and Kenyan coast. Uh, here's a, uh, a British sailor uh, freeing a slave. Uh, the manacle, cutting the manacle on a slave. Uh, this is late in uh, um, late in the century, off the coast of Africa, and evangelicals continued to be activists uh, in the eighteen in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, in the midst of this. Uh, slavery in Brazil was abolished in eighteen eighty eight, and uh, and Britain certainly tried to. Uh, influence that as well and uh, finally I'll um, uh, this is a slave boy being pu punished in Zanzibar in 1890 we can call him Onesimus um, uh, and believe that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, planted some important seeds um, even even back then and I'll finally a, a monument uh, oh, to uh, slavery uh, uh, in Zanzibar, uh, deteriorating, but uh, and my my picture is a little bit blurred, but uh, I better uh, close there. I could talk a little bit more about the economics of it, uh, but uh, uh, you probably heard enough about that. Uh, the economic arguments, but that's a big topic. <laughs> anyway. All right, John. There's a neat book also about the Haida's called Slaves of the Haida. Right. And about yeah. the Portuguese, you know, the capoeira uh -huh. was the slaves in Brazil 
they had a, their martial arts they disguised it as a dance. So the Portuguese slave traders thought that slaves are just dancing when they're practicing capoeira. It was actually martial arts. Okay, well, resistance. <laughs> yeah, sure. This has been just totally fascinating. Thank you very much for doing it. Mm -hmm. We're going to have maybe an epilogue or a part two later on. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get very far, did I? <laughs> Everybody's waiting for Wilberforce in Parliament, and he and he dies. The the law the, the law is passed in 1833. I don't really mention that, and he dies four days later. Oh. Uh, yeah. I was thinking when you spoke. <laughs> That shortly after Cortez invaded Mexico, which would be 1520, uh, the university from which he had graduated, Valladolid in Spain, there was a, a debate among clerics, I mean, university <coughs> clerics, I guess, at that time, um, oh. and they were debating about the right. people that Cortez found in the New World. Right. Were they human, like yeah. us? Yeah. Were they human, not like us? Were they not human? Those were the three points of the debate. I guess I'm wondering whether you've given us a lot of individual uh, people who were active. Did we ever have debates in Christian groups um, or evangelical groups, whatever, post-Reformation groups? Uh, or did they work sort of individually? Did any of them kind of go public and, yeah. and discuss the whys and the why nots? Yeah, there, there, there were debates in Catholic circles about uh, enslaving aboriginals, which they tried to do. Um, and um, I, I believe the church uh, banned that. But uh, So there were debates, but not in terms of abolishing slavery. They, they would be very uh, radical uh, clerics uh, who, yeah. who were... Uh, and, and groups of people that were debating the topic... I don't. I don't know that that exists, or it's not recorded. There, okay. there, there may have been. You know, certainly lots of people could have, like Augustine or Gregory of Nyssa, could have uh, uh, condemned it just from their experience or observations. Uh, but there's no organized effort uh, that, and and there's a lot of uh, the writings of the church of church history are are very extensive and. Uh, I, I haven't read them all, of, of course, but uh, uh, the, these are what I've given you. Uh, I think uh, forms the core of the earliest writings, anyway, uh, condemning slavery, and uh, uh, and, we, and we can see the seeds of uh, in Paul's. Uh, aren't, isn't it good that we have the Book of Philemon? <laughs> it's uh, uh, yeah, uh, but, but if uh, you believe that they are not like us, right. Then a lot of things are possible. Yeah, yeah. Besides a lot of the economic yeah, factors, yeah. which is terribly important. Right. But the attitude that they are not like us. Yeah. Um, That's and, and there was a huge difference between yeah, slavery yeah. in the States, the 13 colonies, and then the States, and, and Brazil, which did not disparage intermarriage with right. freed slaves yeah, or other no, people. You're right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, that right. really would, that kind of misogyny was, yeah. well, if it's still going Yeah, there, there was more manumission there, but uh, they, uh, in the 50s, 1850s, Brazil tried to introduce slaves into industrial settings uh, oh. uh, for a time, and, 
uh, it petered out. There was a lot of pressure against uh, slavery. And, and the Brazil trade, uh, the plantations needed a continuous uh, infusion of new slaves, uh, uh, which, was, which was different uh, from yeah. the... Uh, uh, statistics really show that right, 21 yeah, yeah. And, and I should again emphasize the evangelical doctrine or, or it, it, it would go back to the Puritans and others of monogenesis that uh, of, of humankind being one yeah. and created in the image of God and uh, uh, these abolitionists emphasize that over against uh, others who would racialize it and not to say that there wasn't some racialization thought within evangelicals, but uh, they did not uh, argue that they were subhuman uh, uh, slaves. No, that's uh, so that's that is is very critical. I didn't talk about that enough uh, in, in well, this, but uh, yeah. yeah, but it's there. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, uh, George. What about? Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, what about slavery in the Middle East and the Eastern countries? They weren't the source of slaves for North America, I gather. But what about was there slavery carrying on there? Oh, the, oh, oh yes, uh, into the Mediterranean basin, uh, and it had been coming from, uh, you know, north of the uh, Black Sea, and uh, uh, but also Africa and these. Zanja, in, from from uh, Bantu speaking from East Africa, there were there by seemingly by the hundreds of thousands in, you know, twelve hundred years ago in in the Middle East. Uh, so it, it's 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 massive. Uh, although the Europeans uh, uh, perfected uh, the 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 technique and the uh, uh, you know warehousing of. Uh, of uh, Africans on their ships, as we saw in the brooks uh, uh, there, and uh, yeah, Mel. Yeah, yeah that, that, uh, human and not like us. We shouldn't forget in Europe the Nazis. Yes, and, uh, and the harnessing of yeah, slavery. Yeah, right. And this, Germany is also yeah, the homeland, yeah, uh, evangelical Protestant. Yeah. You know. yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, 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 and, so, and that. Shows how universal. Uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, uh, so that's you know, not too long ago. That's less yeah. than hundred years yeah, ago yeah, yeah. that that happened. So we can't yeah. forget that it happened on European soil. Yeah, you're, and uh, right. so you know, if you can get them, you know, when there is a, uh, an economic value proposition for slavery, mm -hmm. and you can get away with it, mm -hmm. humans are going to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, but when that <clears throat> begins to teeter and totter, I think I think the ethical voices are always there, but they get louder when it starts to totter. Uh, for example, when injurious materialization comes in, mm -hmm. uh, other forces start to come in. Mm -hmm. uh, those voices get louder. I, it, it, you know, so I, I should be a little bit careful in saying that it was only, oh. you know. The Christian impetus, but it was also that the stream was starting to totter, and that emboldens um, many of us in speaking yeah, out. Yeah, but yeah. when it's going really strong, I wonder in Nazi Germany where were those uh, Christian right. voices, which would have been very strong, but it was just in your head. But yeah, yeah, very few. Uh, 
Yeah, and that was my argument. I, I'm, not, I'm not denying the changes uh, uh, in economics, and, eco and evangelicals took the new globalization forces that had produced the slave trade, the tra at least the transatlantic slave trade, and turned that around, the communications, uh, uh, writing, newspapers, uh, uh, all of that against it. But it was, I'm arguing that it was the surge of uh, evangelicalism that provided the horsepower to uh, bring it about, whereas um, it, I don't know that it had to happen. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm open to the economic arguments. Uh, but, but as you said, and I meant to say it, uh, Europe, this same Europe that had fairly, fairly much banished slavery, it came back roaring back, not, not just in Germany, but uh, there were European allies with Germ allied to Germany, that where forced labor uh, took place, and, and in the Far East uh, as well, and in and in Russia, how, how can you you know Russia and the Gulag uh, uh, was uh, there was more slavery going on in the in the second quarter of the 20th century than there was uh, at the time of um, at, at, at the height of. Uh, the numbers would have been, uh, well, at the beginning of the Civil War, there were three and a half million slaves in the U.S. and the Americas, but, but that was 60% of the slaves in the Americas. So in Germany and Russia and other points, I think at the height, uh, the number of slaves may have surpassed that, but in a very small period of time. So slavery... I would argue is is there, and the it's been called a peculiar institution, but what's peculiar is, to me, is is the absence of slavery, uh, I, you know, not complete absence, but uh, um, yeah, and it continues today, of course, with huge numbers. <laughs> Uh, Will you? Uh, would you would you draw any kind of lessons from the way that the church um, could make excuses for slavery uh, during during the 1700s, early 1800s, and the German church could make excuses, the the part that cooperated with the Nazis, and and the way yeah. parts of our church make excuses for abortion now? Yeah, yeah, no, no, you can you can draw that. Uh, yeah, no. And, and and I would say uh, with the abortion debate, it's very much uh, a case. There is, of course, a great organization, uh, but perhaps more of a lonely uh, voice in the wilderness uh, at this point. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Oh, Gary? Just coming on from yeah. that, uh, would you say this was the first time in evangelicalism? It was, very, it was not that old by this time we were discussing here today. Uh, that they took a stand against an institutionalized evil, a structural evil, and could call it sin. Um, and to say to people, I think they would say to people, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that just by passively being part of the society that's doing this, you are also guilty of something. You must stand yeah. against this. Um, that's something that I don't see even yeah. people too ready to do uh, today. Not just about abortion, but a lot of things. So. Yeah. Is this, is this ridiculous to you, or is this true that about evangelicalism? Yeah, I, I, uh, I'd have to think about it. There may have been movements. Uh, yeah, I, I think there were 
humanitarian movements earlier in the church, uh, and, and there was de- tremendous development over the course of the church in terms of of the of the importance of the individual and the care of souls uh, that came uh, when Christianity really ups, upset the, the status quo in Rome in in ancient. Uh, in, the, in the ancient Roman Empire, uh, so yeah, you'd have to think through that. But but the organization that is was possible because of of the of industrialization uh, it, it, before it just wasn't possible to organize like that. But but Christianity spread uh, in its own in its own ways. Uh, uh, I'd just like to ask two last questions. I think I should put one last hand up and then I will let you talk to Bill afterwards, but I hear the singing, so... Yeah. Sultan? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's been mentioned many times in different ways, just this common thread of uh, they're not like us or they're still right. human. And I really see that as yep. a commonality between... And we've, we've heard slavery, we've heard about Nazism and the right. Jews, they were subhuman and yeah. that's what they were teaching. Yep. Um, and, and abortion, I'm really glad yeah, that yeah, up, right? yeah. because that's the big debate, right? Are these really persons? Are we really, yeah, you know? Sure. Um, and I just think that uh, going forward, I mean, we, we see uh, this kind of thing in our own um, uh, discourse, public discourse, right, where we, we separate and, and, hmm. and segregate in this uh, kind of identity politics that's going mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. and how we can work against that, right? Calling mm-hmm. somebody a deplorable, well, that kind of dehumanizes them mm-hmm. and we can, you know, kind of hate them then. It yeah, allows you yeah, to because yeah. you've, you've called them that. Yeah. Um, how can we as Christians uh, work against this? Because I think that we take for granted this universality, which is really a radical Christian idea in a sense that one wouldn't have been innate in any of these other things that, you know, the hide and why, I mean, they, well, you're not of our band, so we... We can overrun you. Right. Um, that was universal, yeah. as opposed to the radical Christian idea, which is we're all made in the image of God, right. and we need to uh, yeah. see one another as, as brothers and sisters, or yeah. potential brothers and sisters, and try to win them to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. How, how can we work in that in our current political situation? Yeah, yeah it's a huge, uh, yeah, uh, to show love and at the same time uh, uh, to be astute and wise and. Uh, I'm willing to, you know, organize and uh, what has to be done, and we can't fight all battles. Of course, I, I, that's part of being being wise. Uh, you know, we as individuals, uh, you commit yourself to uh, certain causes, but collectively, uh, to uh, there's uh, and but to show love in the, in the midst of uh, yeah, don't dehumanize uh, your opponents, uh, but at the same time. Uh, uh, there, there, they, these evangelicals had the ability to speak out, uh, whether James Ramsey, uh, collecting his observations in St. Kitts uh, very early on, uh, yeah. and, and and coming up with uh, uh, the perception to be able to, you know, go against the the tide and say, hey, hey, this is wrong, you know, it's always been like this, but. In this new situation, he was uh, given some insight by the Spirit, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, but thank you. Yeah.